sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. We've got a very interesting discussion today about some things happening at the U.S. Supreme Court, and I call this segment First Amendment Hypocrisy. My guest today is a legal scholar and blogger. Tyler Broker posts on a site called Above the Law, so you can look for his postings there. Tyler, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thanks for having me, Alan. Appreciate it. Well, I've enjoyed our conversations, and now we get to take them to our listening audience. So there's two cases in particular pending before the Supreme Court. I gather that one of them was postponed until next term because of the, uh, the virus-related delays, but two cases that where there are very different views of the First Amendment. Why don't you introduce these cases and what they're all about? Well, the first case called Espinoza v. Montana, and it was brought by a parent of a, uh, a parent in Montana who basically is objecting against a tax scheme that, well, part of the Montana Constitution states that it will not fund religious education. Um, and this goes back to it was established in 1972. And so this parent is objecting to that to that state constitutional provision as basically amounting to hostility against religion. Right? The argument is, you know, in basic terms, states that, hey, you're funding government secular schools, but you're not funding religious schools. And so this is demonstrating government hostility against religious education. And the second case is the Guadalupe School, the uh, Morrissey Baru, that Basically, it involves the ministerial exception, so dubbed, um, was just recently established. And that basically um, the premise is that, hey, you know, ministers and teachers of, of, uh, of religion are, you know, to some degree, and that's what they're trying to tease out, I guess, to some degree exempt from employment laws, government employment laws. And so those are the two cases. So let's take the first one first. There's, I mean, historically, going back to colonial times, when the states and the federal government both disestablished, we have the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, when they disestablished the churches, one of the basic elements of church establishments was money. It was all about, well, we're not going to have government fund the church, right? Absolutely. I mean, this, this goes back to, it does, it goes to pre-Constitution Virginia, in fact, and to the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. And you're right, the entire premise is that, hey, you, you know, civil government, if you're going to have, you know, separation, civil government can't provide support to religious, uh, religious education or religious institutions. And it kind of, you know, sprung out of, of you know, during the revolution, I mean, colonialists were taxed for the Church of England. And they didn't want, many weren't, you know, didn't belong to Church of England and didn't want to be, you know, taxed in those. So right. it kind of sprung out of larger anti-tax rhetoric that came out of the revolution itself. Well, sure. The, the politics of, uh, you know, the Anglican Church being associated, obviously, with England. Right. 
But initially, they were Baptists who, on theological grounds, said, hey, you know, religion is voluntary. Faith is voluntary. We don't even want to pay taxes to support our own church. We want to support it voluntarily as a principle of voluntarism. So fast forward, and part of the attack on this scheme in Montana is that the provision in their constitution is somehow anti-Catholic. Why don't you flesh that out for us? Yeah, despite the fact that you can show clearly that this goes all the way back, you know, to our founding era and James Madison and all that, the attack on Montana is, you know, has been, they're basically upholding what's called a Blaine Amendment. Because, you know, the First Amendment, of course, you know this, Alan, didn't apply to the states originally. And so state governments could have established churches. And what a Blaine Amendment, you know, that was the attempt to kind of bring about this state scheme, into, but incorporate it into the federal constitution. And it was an anti, I mean, the whole purpose was an anti-Catholic measure. But what it did was said, okay, hey, we're going to have these Protestant established schools, but we're going to also include a no aid provision that wouldn't allow, you know, funding of any other type of religious school. So when you look at it in that framework, the entire purpose was to ensure that Protestant schools were the only established schools and that the influx of Catholics, you know, from Irish immigrants and others wouldn't be able to get funding themselves. Now, the idea that this is what Montana is doing in modern day, you know, uh, 2020 is categorically absurd. I mean, you can go back to 1972. I mean, and this was said in the oral argument where the, you know, the AG from Montana was like, I don't know what else you want Montana to do, which is what they did in 1972, which is totally wipe out their constitution, have a constitutional convention, bring in, you know, religious voices and say like, how should we, you know, how should we implement the system of religious liberty? And the religious voices at the time said, hey, we don't want government influence in, you know, religious education. So we want a no aid provision against all of it. But this, again, the difference between Blaine is this applied to all religions and entirely all private schools generally, which is what the Montana Supreme Court did. Mm -hmm. It not only invalidated funding of private religious schools, but private secular schools as well. So it's universal, fundamentally different from what a Blaine Amendment is. And my understanding is that at the time, the Roman Catholic Church in Montana supported this no aid provision. Absolutely. They didn't want, because as soon as you allow to say that, hey, government, you know, you can fund religious education, they were afraid that, hey, you're going to have government trying to tell us what to do. That's how they get there. You get entangled and stuff like So the whole purpose was to avoid this, okay. to avoid this very outcome. What I call the other golden rule, he who he has got the gold makes the rules, right? They want to be independent of government control. And to do that, they know the government can't be their sugar daddy, can't be funding them. Absolutely. So in the Supreme Court, however, there's an attack on the Montana provision that prohibits aid to religion. And you have some religious conservative voices who are saying, no, if you're going to fund the secular public schools, you also have to fund the religious schools, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, and it, and it comes, this is kind of a long, this didn't come out of nowhere. This is a long series of trends where you go to the Trinity Lutheran case v. Comer, you know, a number of years back, where it's this kind of, they ignore the establishment clause and all that and apply, you know, these cases through the lens of a free exercise clause only, which basically is to say like, hey, any differential treatment 
you know, is amounts to hostility. And if you look at it from that kind of lens and you totally, you know, disregard the separation, then yeah, you're going to come to that conclusion of, hey, you're funding government secular schools, but you're not funding religious schools. That must mean you're hostile to religious schools. And you're taking out, you're stripping from the equation of religious liberty, the entire purpose of the Establishment Clause, which goes into what we're saying is, hey, no, we want to completely separate ourselves to have, you know, religious autonomy and how we function without government influence. So religious autonomy historically has, uh, the part of that has been the separation of church and state and the lack of government funding or control over the religious institutions, right? That's all within the separation of church and state under the Establishment Clause. The separation of church and state has come under attack, but the religious conservatives still want autonomy. And we see that in the second case that you're going to talk about. Yeah, that's the the Guadalupe School, Morris E.V. Baru. You see where, you know, you have religious conservatives saying all of a sudden, now, hey, you don't government don't get a say in religious education and what, you know, in hiring and firing decisions that go on with it, because all of a sudden they found their value again in the separation of church and state. And it's, you know, I'm kind of astounded by it, quite honestly. I don't, and because this is happening, like you pointed out, in the same term. You had Espinoza was argued in January, and then you're having in May in the same term where, you know, they, where they're declaring any differential treatment and separation is hostile. And now in the Guadalupe school case, they're saying, oh, no, no, no. You know, you have to you have to stay out of our affairs, but somehow exist under an obligation to fund the schools themselves. And that is inherently paradoxical and incoherent from a legal perspective. So one of the cases, Miss Beale, we're talking about elementary school teachers at Roman Catholic schools um, who may have some responsibilities to teach a religion class out of a workbook. And um, I understand that they didn't even raise the ministerial exception when the case was first filed, mm-hmm. and the judge who brought it to their attention and said, hey, how come you haven't raised this defense? And they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll raise the defense, right? <laughs> and uh, it was rejected by the court. It was rejected by the Ninth Circuit. But, um, well, first of all, explain a little bit what this ministerial exception defense is. It's basically um, what it says, is, hey, if you're a priest or a minister within a church, you, or at least the church itself, has some measure of autonomy over how it selects who are its priests and who are its ministers and who's a, who basically, you know, teaches the faith to its adherents. Right. And this goes to the heart of, you know, what the Establishment Clause is, and, and I think at least um, it based on is, hey, these churches have a large measure of autonomy in how they conduct their religious affairs. And it would mean, I mean, they said it at all our argument, I was I was glad they started with this, the separation would mean nothing if churches didn't have the autonomy to select their own ministers. But I also, I don't like the term itself, the ministerial exception, because I don't think it's, you know, it suggests that, you know, the court or the law is granting an exception or, or specific you know, liberty to something to churches themselves. Whereas, you know, I think it's better described as encompassing a broader, you know, universal liberty of, hey, I don't want to you know, have religion enforced upon me. That's where the Establishment Clause applies to me, a non-religious person. But also for religious people, they don't want to be, 
you know, they don't want to be under the government's yoke and a lot of the stuff and how they, you know, how they operate their religion. And so it applies to everyone. It's not an exception. So there were a couple of the justices who were sounding kind of a, a position of deference to the churches. And that would essentially mean that religious institutions broadly, including schools, could violate the civil rights of their employees with impunity. So, for example, a, a teacher who sexually harasses another teacher and the, the harassed teacher complains, well, she could be fired and there would be no claim that she could bring against the school because she was harassed. You know, likewise, if she were fired for reporting that another teacher had abused a child, you know, and was fired. She would have no claim for retaliation. So these are important issues when it comes to the elementary schools. How far does separation of church and state and how far does deference go? Now, the First Amendment hypocrisy that we, you know, kind of labeled this as is the notion that on the one hand, you know, the churches are seeking funding for their schools, but they don't want to have to answer to the state. They want complete freedom to hire and fire and not be subject to any of the civil rights laws. That's basically the hypocrisy, right? Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, it was, it's not a coincidence, right? It goes right into that hypocrisy that the same justices that were, you know, implying that this should be a broad, you know, exemption were the same ones that were saying that the state of Montana by, you know, <laughs> by excluding itself from religion was acting as a bigot, you know, and it is just, I mean, that they can do this with a straight face is just astounding to me. Well, Tyler, I wish we could continue this conversation, but we're out of time. There's okay. so much more about these cases we could talk about. Yeah. Our guest today has been Tyler Broker, a legal scholar and blogger at Above the Law. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.